If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please open them up to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Be reading the words of Paul recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, starting at verse 2 through verse 7. I told you before and foretold you as if I were present. The second time, and being absent now, I write to them which here, heretofore have sinned, and to all other, that if I come again, I will not spare. Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you word is not weak, but is mighty in you. For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourself whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. Now I pray to God that we do, not e do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that we should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. like to make mention that we have some coffee mugs out in the foyer and those are for our visitors so make sure you grab one before you go uh, has our name on it has some material in it uh, so uh, uh, and share that with someone if you have an opportunity but uh, if you're visiting with us make sure you grab coffee mug We've got some parents in the auditorium. We have some aunts and uncles. We have friends of people who have children or have had children. And probably most of us here at one time or another was placed in charge of a child for a period of time. And maybe you've spoken this phrase. Maybe you've heard someone say this. If I have to come back in there, you're going to be sorry. If I have to come back in there, you are going to be sorry. Now, when does that happen? That happens when the instruction given is not followed or the person in charge perceives that it is not being followed and remedial action needs to take place. If I have to come back in there, you are going to be sorry. <clears throat> but reasonable, reasonable people don't begin with that, do they? Reasonable people do not start off with being irritated, <clears throat> excuse me, with uh, uh, corporal punishment in mind because when I heard those words, I knew that was what would follow. I didn't get a time out. I didn't sit in the corner. I received... An attitude adjustment. Normally what happens is a parent or someone watching a child will speak to the child, explain some things to the child, tell them what we expect and how we uh, need them to go about taking care of that. Uh, you know, there are times when we just simply say that's the way it is. You need to do this because that's what it is. And, and we know that those are the very similar ways that God has dealt with us 
over the history of people, right? God will explain Himself. He gives us the necessary information. But sometimes God just simply says, this is what needs to happen. You need to do this. And we, <clears throat> we see that throughout the history of God's interaction with people. God instructs, He guides, and He requires. Now sometimes that instruction, that guidance, and those requirements simply come in the form of this is why we're doing it, and sometimes it simply is because we're going to do it. And we learn that from our interactions in the home, don't we? We learn that from our earthly fathers, our earthly parents. And we also see that over the course of history, God has instructed, He's guided, He's required, He's dealt with people. But we see often, more than not, that at some point God's patience will have run its course and He will visit His creation with discipline. We, we see that particularly through the Old Testament where it is corporal discipline, isn't it? We see it where He has visited <clears throat> in the form of some kind of physical punishment. And we see it on into the New Testament as well. Throughout the history of the miraculous age, which lasted for about 4,000 years, and now we've been in the Christian age where miracles no longer take place, beginning at the end of the uh, uh, first century, God definitely visited His creation with, with corporal punishment. We see it in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead for lying to God, lying to the Holy Spirit. But we see that's how God operates and we've learned that through our interaction. And, and in the passage read for us, we heard that same sentiment in the voice of Paul. Paul sent a letter to the Corinthians and his displeasure with those who continued to misbehave and live in such a way was prominent in the letter. I don't think we can misunderstand it. I don't think his words could have been any stronger. In fact, he told the impenitent that if I come again, I will not spare. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Maybe we heard something similar to that growing up. Maybe we spoke it. If I have to come back in there, you're going to be sorry when I come. Now, as we look at Paul's interaction with this church in Corinth, he wanted to come sooner than he did. Do you recall why Paul delayed his journey? When we look in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 23, we learn quickly that Paul delayed his coming to Corinth because he wanted those who were misbehaving, those who were living in sin, those who were not doing the things they should have done, he wanted to give them an opportunity to repent of those things and to get their lives back on track. He wanted to give them a chance. Right? We see that same interaction with God throughout the history of man. We see it in our interaction with our own children, right? We state what we expect and we give them an opportunity to do what we expect. And if they don't, we give them an opportunity to correct that. And then we say, if I have to come back in there, you're going to be sorry. And so Paul plainly conveyed to the people in Corinth, I didn't come because I want to give you a chance to repent. But just as my delay is coming to an end, so is your opportunity to do that which is right. Because if I come, I will not spare. 
And so he wanted them to understand that. But within Paul's statement that he made here to Corinth, I want us to focus in on two words. I want us to focus in on examine yourselves. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. He wanted them to take a deep look inward. He wanted them to understand some things about themselves. And someone says, well, for, for what exactly were they looking? And someone says, well, they were, they were examining themselves to determine whether they were living right or not. Well, the problem with that is they knew they weren't living properly. They knew they weren't living correctly. Do you recall the first letter that he sent? It had a whole list of things that they had been talked to about. You're not doing this correctly. You're not doing that correctly. Now, overall, the Second Corinthian letter, he praised them for taking care of a lot of problems, right? But he still wanted them to examine themselves. Well, someone else says they needed to determine whether the things they were doing were appropriate or not. And sometimes we have to do that. Sometimes we have to examine ourselves, and I think there's an application for that in that statement. We need to examine ourselves... Am I worshiping properly? Is my obedience to God proper uh, as far as the plan of salvation goes? Am I living my life in a proper way? Am I doing the things God has asked me to do? Am I refraining from the things God has told me not to do? So I need to do that self-examination. I need to look inward. But I don't think that's the context here. They knew what they were doing was incorrect because they had been taught properly by the apostle himself that they were Incorrect. So again, for what were they looking? For what were they to find and discover as they examined themselves? Well, I believe what Paul intended for them to do and what he intends for each of us to do is to find and root out the problem that's causing this behavior. Is, there some, is something going on in my life that causes me to live in such a way that is displeasing to God? I need to determine what that is why I'm doing it. Am I doing it simply because I don't care? Well, I need to change my attitude. I need to care, right? Am I doing it because I just don't understand? Well, I need to find out and I need to understand. But whatever the problem is, I need to examine myself. I need to look inward. Now, here's what I believe the problem was in Corinth. The sins in which they were living were the results of an improper attitude toward themselves. Now that's the title this morning, My Attitude Toward Myself. Now tonight when we come back, we're going to talk about God's attitude toward me. But this morning, let's talk about my attitude toward myself. If I am going to have a good attitude toward God and those around me, I have to start with a good attitude toward myself. If we have the proper attitude toward ourselves, then surely we can have a proper attitude toward God and a proper attitude toward our brethren and the people in the world. But to do that, for us to have a proper attitude for ourselves, I want us to begin with the idea this morning, and this is our first point, of understanding what our form is, right? What's my form? Well, what do you mean, what's our form? Well, we have to understand who we are. We have to understand our origin, our purpose in life. In fact, we have to understand who made us. That's our form, isn't it? Who made us? Who am I like? And fortunately for us, we've been told that. That's been described for us 
in Genesis 1, the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible. Notice what Moses recorded, Genesis 1, beginning with verse 26. He recorded for us, for our benefit, a conversation that happened within the Godhood. You had the Father, you had the Word, and you had the Spirit. And within that Godhood, there was a conversation. And on the sixth day of creation, God said this, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so within that statement, we learn we're made in the image of God. That's our form. We're made in the image of God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? But I think it goes beyond this initial description. We learn some other things that also support this idea that we're made in the image of God. God gave us dominion. We have a lot of similarities with our Creator. God gave us dominion over every other life form on this earth. It was given to us for our benefit. Now, I believe we ought to conserve what God has given to us. We ought to respect all life forms, but they are here for our benefit. There is no animal that is on the level of humanity. There is no animal worth more to God than what people are. We shouldn't mistreat anything. But God respects and loves humanity. Every other life form is given dominion, or we have been given dominion to that life form. And so the fact that God granted us that dominion shows us we're made in His image. We look like God, don't we? Someone says, well, how do you know? Have you ever seen God? Well, you know, Jesus was asked that question. John chapter 14, show us the Father. And he, he told Thomas, he said, Have I been with you so long? You can't see the Father. If you see me, you see the Father. We look like God. But how do we look like God? Isaiah uh, 18 verse 1, or excuse me, 1 verse 18, tells us that we have a mind with which to reason. We have emotions. We have anger and sadness we have joy. Sometimes we can become frustrated, right? As humans, sometimes we're confused. God's never confused, but we still have emotion. He's given us those emotions. We are like God. We're like Him also because we have an eternal part to us. An eternal spirit that never ceases to exist once it comes into existence. Now, the difference in us and God is that our spirit had a beginning, right? God had no beginning, has no end. We're like Him because of the characteristics that we have. We're made in His image. But we're not made in His image in a material way. That's what we have to understand, right? It's not a material way. We don't look like God physically. God does not have a body. He's a spirit. Uh, flesh and blood cannot be in heaven. He is in heaven, so he cannot have a body. Anthropomorphic uh, 
descriptions have been used throughout the Bible. God's the hand of God, the finger of God, things of that nature. But God doesn't have a physical body. God doesn't care about material things, in other words, right? Now, He's given us material things for our benefit. God doesn't need material things. When we look in Acts chapter 17, Paul, speaking to the Athenians, said, God does not dwell in temples made by the hands of men. God doesn't need anything from His creation. All things belong to Him. Does God care about how much money we make? Does God care about the types of vehicles that we drive? Does God care about the brand of our clothing? What God cares about is that we have food to eat, that we have the necessary means by which to make a living, and that may mean we need a car. God definitely wants us to be clothed and to be clothed modestly, right? But He doesn't care what brand of clothing we have. He doesn't care what our checkbook says. I've known Christians throughout the world, and I'm sure you have too, that that have nothing at all. They're poorer than the poorest of this nation, and God loves them and respects them, and they are just as much children of God as the richest Christian who is faithful. Material things have nothing to do with it. So what I have to understand is that my attitude toward myself better be very similar to the attitude God has toward me. He doesn't care about material possessions. That doesn't mean that we can't have material possessions. There's nothing wrong with being even wealthy. There's nothing I enjoy more than seeing a faithful child of God do well in this physical world. When we look in 3 John, John wanted Gaius to... uh, to prosper physically in relation to how he prospered spiritually. Abraham was a rich man. Job was the richest man of the East. Material blessings are just that. They are great blessings. But God doesn't base His relationship with me on what I have materially. I better understand that I need to be like Christ. My form needs to be like Him spiritually, right? That's how I'm like God. That's how I look like God. I have to live every day to be like Him. This idea of form carries with it the idea of nature. Not physical nature. We're not talking about material things. We're talking about who I am, what I am, and it'd be better said attitude, wouldn't it? What's my attitude toward myself? What's my nature? Uh, The word attitude means a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something, typically one that is reflected in a person's behavior. Paul talked about attitude, Philippians 2, verse 5. He said, remember, and you recall, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. That's an attitude. And then he goes on to talk about uh, humility, really, is what the passage is about. But he didn't stop there. We move over to Philippians 4, beginning with verse 8. And then he says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are just, pure, lovely, good report. If there's any virtue, he said, think on those things. That's our attitude, right? And so Paul discussed and talked about attitude, and that's the attitude we have to have, an attitude of humility. I have to do what God expects, and I have to have humility in every aspect of my life, even when it comes toward comes to uh, be my attitude toward myself, whether that's appropriate or not. I have to understand my form. If I understand my form and I'm made in the image of God, 
that ought to tell me a few things, right? That ought to tell me that, that I'm special and God thinks I'm special, but in the proper way. And that leads us over to our next point. Because I understand my form, I need to have a favorable attitude toward myself. Someone asks a question, and, and this is difficult for a lot of us, but we need to ask ourselves this. Do I, do I love myself? Do I love myself? Someone says, well, that's a little bit arrogant. That's one of the problems in the world, right? We love ourselves. We're selfish. We're not selfless. No, I'm not talking about the world's standard of love. I'm talking about God's standard of love. Do I love myself? I better love myself because God loves me and I have to love what God loves if I'm going to be like God. At the same time, I need to hate what God hates if I'm going to be like God, but I need to love myself in the way that He wants us to love ourselves because the way that I treat others is based in my attitude toward myself. If I do not love myself, how can I love anyone else? It's just not possible, right? The occasion came when a young man came to the Lord and asked him a question in Matthew 22, verse 36. He said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What's the great commandment? Jesus responded to that. He said, beginning in verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. But he went on, he said, There's a second one like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If I can't love myself, how am I ever going to love my neighbor? And my neighbor is the world. Okay? My neighbor doesn't live three houses down from me, and that's my only neighbor. My wife, my children, husbands, right? My next-door neighbors, the people around whom I work, anybody I come into contact with, anybody in the world, I'm supposed to love those people and do what is best for them. See, that's what we have to understand, agape love. This isn't that phileo love, this brotherly love that we enjoy. We're to have that. We're commanded to have that, but that's not the only love we're commanded. Now, we're not going to have that love with everybody in the world. Number one, we don't know everybody in the world, and that's a love that is, is learned over time. But agape love is not a learned love. It's an academic love that says, I'm going to do what's best for that individual. And in this case, I'm going to do what's best for me. And what's best for me is to have an attitude of humility, to have an attitude of obedience, to have an attitude of faithfulness, right? We can love ourselves. God loves us. Here's something else we can do. And this demonstrates a poor attitude toward ourselves. We can sin against ourselves. We can sin against ourselves. If I have a poor attitude toward myself, I'm going to sin against myself because I'm not going to take measures not to do that. Perhaps the, the greatest example of that in the Bible is, is David sinning with Bathsheba. We talked about David a couple weeks ago. He sinned against himself. But when we look at Psalm 51, we learn that David sinned against God. 
But how was it that he sinned against God? Because we know he sinned against himself. Paul talked about sinning against yourself, 1 Corinthians 6, 18. He sinned against himself because he had this lofty attitude. He was arrogant. He allowed that to take over in his life, right? He was the king of Israel. He was out walking on the roof. He should have been going to war. That was the season when kings were supposed to go to war and he was just kind of laying around. He had a lofty, arrogant attitude. God hates sinful pride. He hates it. Proverbs 6. He hates that, right? Paul warned those in Rome. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Romans 12, beginning with verse 1. He goes on to say, and he's talking about our lifestyles, and he says, Do not think of yourself higher than what you ought to think of yourself. In essence, it's what he's saying, right? But what will cause one to sin against ourselves? What will cause one to be conformed to the world? Because that's the same passage. Be, be you not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. What will cause me, as an individual living in the world, to be conformed to the world when I think too highly of myself? Isn't that the world's problem? They think too highly of themselves and they put God on the back burner. They put Him in second place if they put Him anywhere at all. They think too highly of themselves, therefore they become conformed to this world. That's not different, brethren, is it? You know, the world wants to be different. The world is not different. Christianity is different. Always has been since its beginning. Following God, being a child of God has always been different. We've always been in the minority. We've never been the majority. So when the world says, well, I'm going to be different, I'm not going to follow after this myth known as the Bible or this person that you refer to as God, that's not different, that's common. That's common. We're supposed to be transformed. And when I think too highly of myself, I become conformed. Now I want us to recall and remember Paul's exhortation was to all that were among you in Rome. Every Christian ought to never think too highly of himself or herself. We all ought to have an attitude of humility because there is a problem among people. We think too highly of ourselves. How should we think of ourselves? How should we love ourselves? We can't be lofty or arrogant in our love. We have to love ourselves enough to say, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to do whatever is necessary for me to get to heaven because that's agape love. The life of a Christian is a life of restricting myself. Right? Restricting myself for the, that which is greater. And if I don't love myself enough to restrict myself, I'm in trouble, right? When we think of ourselves, we're to think soberly, Paul said. What does that mean, to think soberly? It means that which is balanced, that which is sane in one's right mind. It is insane to think too highly of one's self. We're to evaluate our persons properly. We're to look at ourselves and, we're try, and, and we need to discern the abilities that we have the ways in which we are using them, my attitude toward myself. Now, that's, that's a part of this as well, right? 
2 Corinthians 13. They needed to root out the problem. They needed to examine themselves. But they needed to do it properly. They needed to look at themselves for what they were. See, if I have a proper attitude toward myself, I can understand how important I am in the eyes of God. Now, that's not a lofty importance. That's not an arrogance. But it it allows me to understand where I am in my relationship with God and that I am important, right? Why would we want to lose that? Do you know what happens when someone lifts themselves up higher than what they ought to be? They lose their estate with God where He placed that individual. The sin that happened in heaven, Satan and those angels, they left their first estate. They left where God properly placed them, Jude verse 6. Paul suggested that was a lofty or an arrogant attitude, 1 Timothy 3, verse 6. And so what had happened was they wanted to lift themselves up, and what they did, they lost their position with God. Same thing was happening in Rome. That's why he wrote the letter, or that, actually that passage, right? Much like in Corinth, there were people, they had spiritual gifts, and you had those who thought their gifts were greater. Because I can speak in tongues, and that's something that you can visually see, I'm greater, have more power, more authority. I'm thinking too highly of myself. See, what has happened then is that person loses his estate. Why is that insane? Because those gifts, they didn't come about by that person's own doing. God blessed them with those gifts. That's why my relationship with God has nothing to do with material things. Because God gave me all those things in the first place. It's my spirit my nature. It's my attitude. So if we're going to have a proper attitude towards ourselves, we have to know our form. We have to have that favorable attitude. When I do that, I can guard my future. I can guard my future. And that is something that is paramount. That's our final point. A godly attitude will allow me to use my abilities for the furtherance and the betterment of the kingdom. That's the attitude I need to have, right? How does attitude affect abilities? Have you ever thought about that? How does attitude affect abilities? Well, someone says, well, I don't have, I don't have any abilities. Well, that's not true at all, is it? When we read the, the parable of the talents, everyone had at least one talent, so we've got something. When we read the, the, the parable of the uh, pounds, they, each one had ten pounds. Each person had 10 pounds. So we all have something. So that, that's a poor attitude saying, well, I just can't do anything. I'm, I'm impotent in, in every way. Well, that's a poor attitude. Now everybody knows better than that, right? We can do something. We may have the, the attitude of, I have some ability, but I just simply don't want to do it. I'm able to do some things, but I don't care enough about it to do it. Now in certain aspects of life, I guess that's okay. But not when we're living for God. Not when we are talking about our inner person and the attitude that we have and the abilities. Do you know what the difference was between those servants and the, those two parables? Their attitude. You had the, the servants in the parable of the talents who had five, two, and one. The five and two talent servants, they had a better attitude. Attitudes separate servants. Attitudes separate servants. And so we have to have a better and a proper attitude. My attitude toward myself will direct my life. Am I going to do what I need to be doing? 
what I need to understand, if I'm going to maintain my abilities, I have to have proper administration over them. I have to have proper administration. I have to continue to use them. I can't have an ability and then not use it. Paul talked about that and he admonished Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 14. He said, don't neglect the ability that you have. Don't neglect the ability. Use that ability. I don't know why he made that statement to Timothy, whether it was just preemptive encouragement or whether something had happened and and Timothy needed that. But what what would cause that to happen? What, What do you believe would cause us to stop using our abilities? I don't know. A lot of things I, I imagine would happen, but we need to be sure that we're on guard. When we recognize something isn't happening, we need to correct that. Right? When we recognize we've gone a, a, a way opposite of what God wants, we need to correct that. And we see that in 1 John 1 verse 9. We need to ask God to forgive us. We need to repent of those sins. We need to confess our faults. Now, he's talking to Christians, right? That's not how the alien sinner becomes a Christian. The alien sinner can't pray to God. We're talking about Christians. That's who John was writing to in 1 John. So, the Christian, when we recognize we're not using our abilities, we're not having proper administration over them, we need to correct that. And that's what God expects. But here's what Satan will tell you. You you make a mistake in this life and Satan says... Well, God doesn't love you anymore. You've done too much. You might as well forget it. I was talking with someone the other day, and the author of uh, Muscle and a Shovel, and it's a wonderful book. We have several of them in the, in the library. We've given a lot of them away. That's why we have them. But the author of that book, he became unfaithful at one time. Not long after he wrote that book. And his wife was encouraging him and encouraging him. And he went off into all, uh, all sorts and types of sins. And, but he made the statement. He said, God can't forgive me. I've done too much. Now, he did some bad things. There's no doubt about it. But can God forgive? Well, sure he can. If we'll repent, if we'll confess our faults one to another, God never stops loving us. Now, that doesn't mean he won't punish. He'll punish the, the unforgiven. He'll punish the disobedience, but He still loves us. He wants every sinner or fallen Christian to repent and come to Him. Of course, we understand the plan of salvation. We talk about it all the time, faith and repentance. Confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, immersion in water for the forgiveness of sin, and then faithful living. And Then, then we need to be on guard. It's just starting. Right? We need to be on guard. We need to watch what we're doing. Jesus comforted His disciples with a home in heaven, the fact that He was going to go and prepare that, and that He would return again and they could be with Him, John 14, 1 through 3. But let me tell you something else. The writer of Hebrews warned all those who were leaving Christ that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10, 31. It is a fearful thing to fall, isn't it? Anytime we fall in the physical world, that's fearful. We, we can injure ourselves. We don't want, no one wants to fall. But that's what happens when we do not live right. We fall into the hands of the living God. Or we can be sturdy in the hand of God, John 10, 29. We can have 
His security as we are in His hand. And no person or thing can take us from His hand, but I can leave it. I can leave His hand. And that's not what He wants. It's always, again, fearful when we fall, but it's so encouraging to have a firm foundation under our feet. What is my attitude toward myself? I have to have an attitude that will allow me to know where I stand in my relationship with God. Whatever that attitude is, right? I have to have the proper attitude that says, I recognize where I am with God, and I may need to do something about that. One where I'm honest with myself. One where I recognize the faults in my life, the deficiencies, the things I need to correct. I need to have that attitude. If we can't be honest with ourselves, we cannot be honest with anyone. I need an attitude that allows me to honor the image in which I was made. To honor my form. I need to have the attitude that that I have a favorable attitude toward myself. I need to love myself properly. And when I do that, I can make sure that I guard my future. And that's what God wants. He wants us to do that. John C. Mitchell said this. I think this is a wonderful quote. He said, A dream with a poor attitude makes a daydreamer. He said, A good attitude without a dream makes a likable person, but one who cannot properly progress in this life. But a dream with a good attitude makes a person who can accomplish the goals of this life. And I agree with that. What's our dream? What's our hope? Hebrews 11.1 talks about our faith is the substance of things hoped for. What, for what do I hope? Eternal life. And I better have a proper attitude toward myself in gaining that. We need to be able to do that so we can enjoy the eternal blessings of heaven and honor the one who gave his life for us as he hung on the tree. What's my attitude toward myself? better be a good one. Whatever it is, it better get me to heaven or help me to get there. If you've never obeyed the gospel, do that today. Change your attitude. Make it more God-like. Do what God's asked you to do. If you've done that and you've become unfaithful, come back to Him today. Change your attitude if it needs to be changed as we stand and as we sing.